Welcome to the podcast. My name is Kevin Donahue, and today we're going to be talking about the Internet of Things and primarily how we got here. Way back in the late 1970s and early 1980s, if you were talking about enterprise computing, what you were really talking about was IBM mainframes. Now, there's going to be a lot of folks out there that will talk about the um, the Digital Equipment Corporation or DEC PDP-11 or Sperry Univac 9080s and things like that. And yes, they were there. But they were, in a lot of cases, really just peripheral devices to the big corporate data centers. And in those glass houses, you had big mainframe machines from IBM. So that's my frame of reference. Now, back in the days of the IBM mainframes in an enterprise environment, you would typically have the mainframe and uh, certain peripheral devices, uh, disk drives, tape drives, punch card machines, punch card readers, um, printers, things like that within a glass house environment. Getting in and out of this system uh, – or pardon me, getting in and out of this room, you could not uh, get through security. You had to have security clearance, things like that. So it was a pretty, pretty well-sealed uh, fishbowl, if you will. Now, getting that information out to users was primarily through things like punch cards or paper tapes, um, printed reports, and at least in the early days for the lucky few, dumb terminals. Now, to connect these various devices, you had different channels that were, from a physical standpoint, cables. And I'm talking about big cables. These things were about an inch in diameter with these giant plastic connectors at the ends that were, I don't know, could be five or six inches long. From a terminal perspective, those cables would attach to control units. And you might have one big cable that went out to a control unit. And out of that control unit, you could have, um, you know, eight, 16, 32 different terminals or printing devices that were connected out the front end of that through coax cables. If we focus really on the terminals, these were the early dumb terminals. These things weighed a ton. They had a green screen, they had a keyboard, and they really didn't have anything else. Even at that, if you had one of these things in an enterprise environment, say in the early 1980s, uh, you were ahead of the game. Because most people, they only got reports and they looked at a report and if they had more questions, they had to submit things down to MIS. Yes, it was called MIS for Management Information Systems. This is the title pre-IT. So go on a few years, more and more people got these dumb terminals. Uh, really, the functionality didn't increase at all. It was green screen. It was text-based. There was nothing graphical. But – Having a terminal was better than having a report. Now, in the early to mid-1980s, the IBM PC started making its way into the enterprise. The primary reason for that is the IBMers actually had offices inside those enterprise accounts. So um, on-premise, you would have one or two IBM salespeople, one or two IBM techs that would uh, 
you actually often saw these guys at least once a day. And then you had a team of probably six or seven IBMers that their whole job was to keep you up and running and continue to sell you new things. Um, in addition to selling the mainframes, these are also the same guys that sold those IBM typewriters. Now, when the IBM PC came along, uh, these folks did a really great job of selling those uh, PCs to the administrative assistants and secretaries of you know the the management. And in those cases, every middle manager had a secretary, at least shared a secretary across four or five managers. So these secretaries, I had to do a lot of typing. There was a lot of dictation and things like that. So for them to get a personal computer on their desk and to be able to use early word processing applications like WordPerfect, this was a huge leap for these folks who were really used to typing a standard sheet of paper. Sometimes they might type two pages at a time by slipping a piece of uh, carbon paper in between. By the way, that is where CC, which stood for carbon copy, made it into the uh, modern-day email vernacular. Now, even at that, running copies was expensive. So being able to do things on a PC with a pretty advanced thing called a dot matrix printer enabled these administrative assistants to uh, get a lot more work done in a shorter amount of time. And especially when you had someone that was spread across four or five different managers asking for different things, different reports, this was a huge leap for these folks to have one of these personal computers on their desk. Now, if you take the next level as these big green screen terminals from the mainframe started proliferating out as costs came down, some folks that had PCs would have both a PC and a terminal on the same desk. Neither one of these things was small, so it took up a lot of space. Eventually, what people were able to do is through a device that uh, at the time was called an Irma card and you would place one of these cards into the PC and it had an attachment on the back for a coax cable and what that provided was the ability to use that PC as if it were one of those green screen terminals and take one of those big honking green screen terminals off the desk of that fortunate individual who was allowed to have a personal computer. It was about this time that you saw the introduction of the first local area network or LAN technologies, uh, which allowed multiple personal computers to speak to one another and, and uh, ultimately on the back end connect to the mainframe as well. Initially, IBM in enterprise environments, was promoting their token ring, local area network architecture. This was eventually supplanted by Ethernet, which is still today how personal computers, internet devices, etc., all communicate. Now, if you take things to the next level, 
you'll see that this was really the beginning of client-server computing, the first really distributed computing architecture. Throughout the 1980s, what one saw on the screen of an IBM PC really did not look any different than what they might have been familiar with on the old dumb terminals. Text-based uh, interface, nothing like the graphical interface that at that point had been um, designed and marketed by Apple Computer on their Macintosh. It wasn't until the early 1990s where the enterprise began to adopt the concept of a graphical user interface with Windows version 3.1. Now, it's important to understand the reasons that beyond the typical, hey, I've got a PC here, I can do some basic word processing or um, early spreadsheets, and I can print out uh, my own reports and use this as a dumb terminal. That's great. But the real advantage came from the fact that these are the days when really you couldn't buy software. There were very limited things like you had WordPerfect for word processing and Lotus 123 um, for spreadsheets. This was way before uh, the Microsoft Office suite. But for the, the big things that you wanted to do, uh, to have new transaction systems developed or even get the title of a report modified, you had to submit that to the MIS group. And the MIS group, they might have two to 300 developers that were custom developing primarily uh, COBOL applications. And you had to get in line with a whole bunch of other people who uh, felt that their changes or their requests for new applications were of a higher priority than yours. With this new capability for people in the business units to develop their own reports, this meant that they didn't really have to deal with the MIS group, which means they could have these changes done uh, rapidly within the department using resources that were really uh, managed not by the MIS group, but the business unit leader. So these are really where the, um, the fat clients started taking hold. It was roughly that same time that you had companies like SAP and PeopleSoft that were developing industry-specific applications for things like manufacturing, or in the case of PeopleSoft, they really were strong with human resources departments. They were able to develop applications that were specifically designed for client-server environments where you had a local area network, say, in a human resources department. One of those uh, PCs, because they were really all still PCs at the time, would be your database server PC, and you had different uh, client applications on each one of the PCs. And this human resources department could deal directly with PeopleSoft, have things up and running, and in a lot of cases, the MIS people didn't even know that it was there. It was at this point when the MIS groups started using client-server-centric graphic development tools such as Power Builder to really kind of uh, take things back 
they were able to more rapidly respond to the needs of these business units and they uh, didn't have to worry as much for these folks going outside and purchasing applications that the MIS group did not approve of but ultimately would end up supporting. Prior to the adoption of client-server computing, from an MIS perspective, the concept of support was fairly limited. Uh, you might make a request for a new report title or new transaction, and it would go through an evaluation process. It could take several weeks, several months, and sometimes uh, a year or more before anything really happened. And you didn't have a situation where someone was calling up and saying, hey, can you help me with my PC? Because you simply didn't have one. As client-server became more widely adopted, you now had dozens and hundreds of personal computers of different sizes, shapes, varieties, connected to different networks using different printers, uh, different versions of software. Things were really uh, getting out of control in a way that the MIS group really didn't know how to manage it. In the world of the centralized IBM mainframes, Everything existed in that glass house, and MIS owned that glass house, and no one got in or out. And IBM had a whole host of really fantastic software maintenance tools that really helped not only the enterprise keep things under control, but helped IBM help the enterprise when uh, they ran into different challenges. Client-server computing brought in a whole new set of challenges. The concept of distributing software across multiple devices didn't exist. So if somebody was upgrading a client-server application, what that meant is you had to take a whole stack of diskettes and go from one machine to the next to install the next version of that application. We used to call this SneakerNet. Uh, sometimes you would do it over a weekend. You would have this same set of diskettes, and you could go to dozens or hundreds of machines to install that new client to make sure that on Monday morning when everybody came in, everything was up and running. What this meant was that because of client-server computing, which was really the first distributed computing architecture, a whole new set of tools, a whole new set of business processes needed to be developed to manage this this new MIS slash IT environment. This is what brings us back to the Internet of Things. With IoT, things are now exponentially more complex than they were when we went from the centralized one-tier enterprise computing to two-tier client-server computing. Now, not only do we have the legacy applications like the SAPs of the world, but you also have highly distributed applications that go across different divisions of organizations. You have web-based applications. You've got mobile technology and mobile devices that are running different operating systems, such as different versions of Android and iOS. It is dramatically, dramatically different from what organizations are used to. And in this new world of IoT, when you consider um, multiple platforms, 
requirements for redundancy, peer-to-peer, and sensor communications, a whole new set of tools, operating processes, uh, infrastructure, a whole new set of things are going to be needed to be developed. And this process that we have to go through now is really not all that dramatically different from the early days of distributed computing going from the mainframe to client-server architectures. In the next chapter, we're going to talk about taking client-server computing to the Internet and how introducing scalability and failover and redundancy and fault tolerance brought about a whole nother set of changes in the world of enterprise computing. We'll also talk about some of the lessons learned from the late 1990s to the early 2000s and really the explosion of um, the Internet, both in the enterprise and on the consumer side, and how those lessons can apply both to technology vendors and end users as the Internet of Things becomes a much more ingrained part of our professional and uh, personal lives. Well, there you have it. My name is Kevin Donahue, otherwise known as the IoT Guy. You can follow me on Twitter at the IoT Guy. Uh, check out our blog at theiotguy.com, or you can reach me via email at Kevin at theiotguy.com. All feedback, comments, questions are always welcome and very much appreciated. Thanks again for listening and have a wonderful day.